desire, commitment, stubbornness are much more, I would say, easier and rewarding experience and they ensure us much faster. Welcome to the U.S. Law Essentials Law and Language Podcast, the legal English podcast for non-native English speakers to help you improve your English listening, improve your legal English vocabulary, and build your knowledge of American legal culture. Hi, this is Daniel, and before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that U.S. Law Essentials offers online courses in legal English and U.S. law. Our courses are designed for international attorneys, law students, and translators. If you have any questions, please contact Daniel at daniel at uslawessentials.com and join us on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And now, today's episode. Welcome to U.S. Law Essentials Law and Language Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Horowitz. And today we continue our series of interviews on the topic of multilingual lawyers with our special guest, Yaroslav Hregercek, who until October last year, for seven and a half years, served as the Deputy Business Ombudsman for the Business Ombudsman Council in Ukraine, and who also recently spent two months traveling in the U.S. as a German Marshall Memorial Fellow. So welcome, Yaroslav, and thank you so much for joining this episode. Uh, thank you very much, Stephen, for having me. Uh, Yaroslav also has a law degree from Taras Shevchenko National University of Kiev, uh, studied as a scholar at the University of Alberta, and has an LLM from McGill University in Montreal. Back in 2015, Yaroslav also became a fellow with the Chartered Institute of Arbitrators in London uh, in the UK. I met Yaroslav in January 2023 on a Zoom webinar organized by the Harvard Club and the Professional Government Association of Ukraine, uh, titled Hard Talks About the Future of Ukraine, in which Yaroslav was interviewed by Artem Shapov of USAID about his visit to the U.S. Uh, as a German Marshall Memorial Fellow. Uh, and I was struck by Yaroslav's frank insights and observations on American political and legal culture in connection with Ukraine, uh, with its current struggle and its future goals. So Yaroslav, I'd like to start out asking you first, uh, how are you doing right now and how are your, how is your family doing? I think you're in Bratislava, Slovakia right now, but you'll be returning soon to Ukraine? Yes, for, for the time being, I got an opportunity to spend a few weeks here with my family, whom I haven't seen that much since the war started, and they moved in here and settled here. Uh, next week, indeed, I am heading back to KU. Um, and before we get into uh, your work and career, I first just want to ask you about your cultural and language background, uh, as well as your language learning experience in your life. In other words, what languages do you speak and how and why did you come to learn those languages? Uh, well, uh, I was born in 1974 in a little uh, Transcarpathian town called uh, Rahu where the center of uh, Europe is reportedly uh, located. There is a special uh, tomb there that has been placed in uh, mid-19th century, I believe, but uh, during the times of our Austro-Hungarian Empire. 
Uh, I mean, I'm quite proud about that, uh, although I might admit that any uh, uh, or all uh, uh, Central or Eastern European nations uh, would claim that they have the center of Europe at their own territory. And, uh, you know, we might see those uh, uh, tombs kind of scattered all over the region. But uh, uh, yes, uh, I was uh, born uh, uh, in, a, in a sort of a very small provincial mountainish uh, settings, uh, still uh, during the times of the former Soviet Union, uh, which uh, made me graduate uh, from the secondary school there in 1991 with the command in uh, uh, knowledge of Ukrainian as my mother tongue and uh, Russian, uh, because the latter was the inherent part of uh, the Soviet academic curriculum in any school. Uh, English was also taught, uh, but uh, it's either because I have not managed to uh, come up with the necessary degree of uh, flexibility with my mind or uh, for some other purely pedagogical uh, uh, reasons, I cannot, uh, uh, with all due respect, <laughs> to uh, characterize myself as someone that had any uh, decent command in English uh, at that time when I entered university uh, in 1991 and I became a law student with the faculty, the most prestigious. Uh, uh, Ukrainian uh, uh, university and law school. I was at that time pretty much the child of the transition that uh, that uh, part of the world, my part of the world, was experiencing as uh, I was admitted uh, still during the times of the former Soviet Union as kind of a Soviet student. But by the time when, and, and I started in, in, in September by receiving a so-called stipendia, uh, the, the, that's, you know, uh, the system of education where you are actually uh, provided with a bit of a financial allowance called stipendia, which was paid to, 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 to all uh, full-time students. But the uh, thing was that uh, although I was admitted and started during the Soviet Union, uh, in the middle of that academic year, I already became like a purely Ukrainian student and graduated from uh, independent Ukraine. Uh, and uh, uh, yes, uh, Stephen, during my kind of an academic studies, uh, I have kind of gradually came to understanding that you have to learn and understand and have a good command in English in order to succeed in my profession the way I imagined I want. So as you were growing up, would you say you spoke more in Russian or in Ukrainian or both of them all the time? Well, I guess that's the peculiarity of the region. Uh, I would definitely say that I spoke uh, predominantly Ukrainian, but uh, it would be not infrequent for me to read books in uh, Russian. Maybe because uh, that the way how the humanitarian uh, policy uh, was being arranged in uh, the former Soviet Union by trying to induce people, young people, to learn uh, and becoming more uh, uh, sort of a comfortable with Russian, but through publishing the best books, not in Ukrainian, but rather in Russian uh, language. So it was perhaps the element of the incentivization policy. 
And if I gave you a math problem to do right now in your head, which language do you think you would be most likely to do it in? Only Ukrainian. Yeah. You, uh, do it, I mean, you could do math yeah, in your I head mean, in my, Ukrainian. My, my mind would produce uh, uh, Ukrainian words. So they would come up first. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then how did you learn English? Uh, because you're speaking English with me right now and you seem very comfortable with English. And you said yes. when you were when you were studying it in school, that was not it was not something that was necessarily coming easy. At what point did you feel and, and how did you learn English? Uh, uh, at a point when I saw a, a marginal, very small portion of my classmates or folks that would be together in the same year with me. Uh, uh, at the law school, succeeding more uh, than I was able to. I saw the uh, knowledge of English as a perfect tool uh, to be able to uh, enjoy just a better, more diversified uh, uh, student life by being able to travel abroad, uh, just to simply work student programs or something like that, which I never did because it just never happened to me. I would probably never be eligible to qualify when it comes to uh, language command. And maybe uh, even when it comes to uh, facilitating or participating in some uh, uh, lawyering, uh, some uh, 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 work that would be paid during those uh, uh, years uh, at far more better uh, level than for those who uh, wouldn't have command in English. And don't forget that uh, I have to recall that it was days when the Ukrainian legal market was still in a very much infantile state. There were no uh, 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 established uh, roster of uh, law firms all this was still being forged uh, many of the legal assistance was uh, organized on a pretty much ad hoc basis and it was not infrequent that the actual legal law professors would be uh, doing something that they would know nothing about uh, when it comes to the area of law substantial area but only because of a small comment in english they would still be hired so the level of professional marketability that you would be able to gain and benefit from if at that times, and I'm talking about 1991, 1996, even seven, uh, uh, the level of marketability and profit that you could gain uh, by having a certain even minimum uh, level in English was immense. It's not like that these days anymore. Uh -huh. So when you went to study in Canada, uh, how what was that experience like where you were in a in a primarily english language environment uh it was uh, what i have uh, deserved i guess uh, uh uh it was like uh the the story of a kid who dreamt to uh become like commando and then ended up in the actual training camp and realized how incredibly difficult and sometimes cruel this experience might be but uh, uh in my case this happened because i was proactive with the organization with the ngo called ukrainian legal foundation that was run uh, among other things by the late uh, uh, mother of uh, 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 of, of um, 
uh, lady that used to be Canadian Minister of Foreign Affairs, um, uh, Pani Halina Freeland was uh, the founding mother of that organization. And among other things, they promoted the idea of setting up uh, the Western type law school uh, under the auspices of the, Inter the Institute of International Relations and International Law. And they needed the roster of uh, Ukrainian uh, young legal uh, scholars, professors. And in order to enable this roster to, to, to be created, they would uh, uh, attract funds from the Canadian government. They would pick up folks like me, and I was pursuing PhD in administrative law at that time uh, with my university. And uh, uh, since the uh, English was assessed, uh, we are institutional TOEFL, not the actual true one yeah i guess i was placed in uh yeah, circumstances when the level of command that i had at that time through self-education mostly because uh, the level at my uh, uh, at the law school where i was a student what would still be sort of difficult for me to master or the number of lessons would not be enough at least i have not succeeded in in, in there but I've been stubborn enough to do a lot of self-education things, uh, reading and uh, watching BBC uh, or something like that, which uh, uh, was what you were supposed to arrange. It's not as easy as it is right now, you know, open up uh, YouTube or um, uh, find some other pretty much accessible uh, uh, means of uh, self-education. The uh, 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 desire commitment stubbornness are much more i would say easier and rewarding experience and they ensures much faster uh, outcome now due to the technological advancements than it was uh, uh, in 1994 uh, uh, or five uh, my my best invention one of them was uh, and i did it manually i would uh, collect empty uh, boxes uh, uh, uh and cigarette boxes from uh, my older uh, colleagues uh, older students in the dormitory i would take a piece of paper i would cut it in a very small uh, uh pieces and on the one side i would write a english verb and on the other side i would manually write the ukrainian version and I would collect, I would say, I don't know, 20 or 30 of those boxes. And I would entertain myself in the evening uh, or at my leisure time by looking at uh, one of the versions and uh, kind of letting my brain to memorize uh, the words uh, in all possible versions from Ukrainian to English and vice versa. That was the technological advancement, uh, Stephen. Yeah, <laughs> right. I mean, I, I compare that now. I I, I decided I, uh, to start learning Ukrainian a few months ago, so I just pull out Duolingo. Right, much easier. Yeah. So a million times easier and more convenient. And and do you remember? Was there a point where you felt? I think I'm I think I'm fluent in English now. Or did you have a dream in English at a certain point, and you said, "Hey, I'm dreaming in English. This is pretty good." Yes. Uh, I mean, uh, it, it, it seems, uh, Stephen, that you are certainly uh, not uh, uh, interviewing someone like me for the first time in your life, because, uh, you know, people's recollections uh, 
uh, when they're going through the same type of experience, they tend to repeat itself in a way. Yes. So uh, in a nutshell, indeed, coming back to the experience that started straight by attending uh, lessons uh, uh, in uh, classes uh, with the law school uh, at the University of Alberta, kind of being uh, thrown from the bridge uh, to the deep waters, you are in the first row or whatever, you, I would bear the status of a special student and I would be supposed to understand uh, what the uh, uh, professor is saying. And uh, my problem was that it was not even the situation when I started between you and me, that I would uh, like understand every word, every sentence, but I wouldn't uh, understand the meaning. Yeah, I would have a substantial uh, difficulty. My level, frankly, at that time when I started was so poor that I couldn't decipher the beginning and the end of the sentences even. Uh, well, maybe I am exaggerating a bit, but it would happen sometimes. Uh, so that gradually, but surely, uh, uh, you know, the uh, passive uh, 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 baggage that I arrived with to Canada in terms of what I was doing stubbornly back in Ukraine for several years somehow started to in unveil itself. Uh, like I have started to experience more of a um, elasticity with my with my mind, with my air, and then gradually with the ability to express it uh, through my uh, speaking uh, 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 skills. Uh, the effect of the closed up uh, environment where you are constantly exposed to the uh, interchanging elements of what command in a certain language is listening then speaking then reading and then again uh, uh sort of uh, this 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 cruel uh, uh in in a way exposure when you couldn't sort of let yourself uh, relax i mean at the end of the day i was immediately in a very challenging acad academic circumstances and, and environment. I wasn't uh, uh, pr privileged to spend a year or two working on the Canadian gas station, just occasionally t talking to, you know, bypassers and drivers. It was immediately a, a very uh, strong uh, and demanding uh, exposure that I had to cope with. What helped me, by the way, and this is something that I am offering as a, a advice to everyone who might have ended up in the same circumstances, what helped me a lot was to watch Canadian TV with captions. Mm. So that you uh, can sort of tie up uh, uh, the sounds of sentences and uh, uh, words with the way how uh, they are written. And it was immensely uh, uh, resourceful and uh, a positive experience to me. But yes, then at some point in time when the second semester started, uh, it was not before fourth or fifth months of my stay in Canada. Suddenly it was like a breakthrough. And uh, I started to see that, that dreams and that first dream maybe in January or February, but not earlier than that, I would say, yeah. Huh. Yeah, I, I had a similar experience when I lived in Japan, and I, I remember I had a dream where there was a famous sumo wrestler, and he spoke to me in Japanese, and that was that was when I realized that you sort of hit a breakthrough point. Um, 
let me shift now and ask you about your experience with the German Marshall Memorial Fellow Program that, that brought you to the U.S. for a couple months this past fall. That must have been a very different experience than when you went uh, when you first went to Canada, when you, uh, you know, just just out of university. Uh, yes, uh, it was in a totally different stage of my life and effectively the um, yeah, meaning uh, of uh, these two states were uh, way too different. The, the, the first one was purely academic exercise aimed at enabling me to develop a, a course, a curriculum in comparative administrative law. That was the case uh, of my first stay in Canada. And by the way, uh, just wrapping up on your prior question, I can say that uh, I finished my stay in Canada at that time by passing uh, uh, by passing uh, the actual TOEFL. Uh, so it was like a conclusive point. Uh, so after one academic year there, when it was still the old uh, system of scores, I know that they have changed. At that time, it was 660 was the highest mark that the one could have earned. I think I showed something like 620 without uh, sort of overstretching myself in uh, doing some sort of a special uh, um, drills uh, to get myself prepared specifically for TOEFL because people do that. I mean, I, I know some Asian students don't want to emphasize on this uh, too much, but I wouldn't say that they would speak better than I, probably much worse than me, but somehow they're just so incredibly talented. Uh, at least that was the phenomenon that I was experiencing that I observed at that time in passing uh, 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 awful with just flying colors. Uh, 660, 650 at that time, it was not something unusual. I don't know uh, where the, the, does that talent or special training would be coming from, but yeah, that's that's what I, what I've seen. Maybe the the, the technique uh, or the logistics or inner logic of the test might have changed in the meantime, but that's what I observed then. And uh, by the way, that enabled me two years later re-enter Canada uh, on my own uh, because the language command was already there. Some recommendations from Canadian professors was already there. So McGill really wanted to have me on board as the part of their graduate program for international students. They even gave me the largest scholarship that they had for for, for internationals, which was uh, good in terms of uh, you know financial aspects of my my graduate education in in canada uh and yeah uh, uh that's that's probably one uh, of the first features that differ uh, makes these two 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 experiences different because uh i would say that i have spent something like two and a half years of my life in canada and this experience was in the united states I was not in the United States before. Uh, there was only one short uh, trip to my friends in DC for a week with my family already. Uh, some, I don't know, it was like 10 years ago. Uh, and it was only DC. And uh, uh, I would travel once uh, through uh, uh, Atlanta on my way to the uh, International Bar Association uh, conference in Cancun as uh, the representative of Europe when I was doing a um, graduate degree at McGill. But apart from that, no uh, sort of a, uh, other uh, personal uh, exposure uh, 
uh, to the United States uh, as, as such. And uh, uh, in, in such a kind of advanced uh, age or a mature age as 48, uh, which is, which is uh, uh, what I am old right now, uh you know you end up in the uh, circumstances that yes you have been pre-selected to represent europe uh, uh as a ukrainian uh, uh in the roster uh which is designed to 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 attract uh, uh already a mature uh, professionals that have already succeeded fully or partially in uh, demonstrating certain leadership skills um and who know uh, what transatlantic cooperation is about and who could facilitate this uh, uh, uh on uh, uh, one of its uh, pillars uh, either security or energy or uh, civil society or economic development uh, i think because of my professional role that i used to occupy at that time i kind of was wearing all of these hats more or less at the same time and that that kind of attracted my my candidacy and yeah you arrive you are the part of the group comprising around 20 people from different countries and you are obliged to travel around the united states at the expense of the program and uh, it's actually less than two 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 months uh, uh steven it's uh, several weeks uh, three and a half i would say and during such a short period of time you are required to visit five cities at the program's choice uh, you are directed where to go which is yet another uh, element of fun um yeah, that you are supposed to have by actually meeting the requirements of the program and in my particular case the fate brought me uh from the uh, washington dc which is the initial point which is the point of entry for everyone Americans would also come there as the American uh, roster. We would spend a nice two and a half days there to, uh, to, together. They would afterwards uh, uh, travel to Europe uh, to see certain pre-selected European cities. And uh, uh, us, we would uh, uh, have three cities participating each uh, week. And they would kind of mingle us. They would mix up uh, us for in, in, in different Can ways. Can yeah. I interrupt for a second? Is are the other twenty fellows? You said there's about twenty of you. It's not all Ukrainians, correct? And and they're not necessarily oh, all was, lawyers, uh, are they? Uh, yes, I was the only Ukrainian citizen on the roster. Okay. And were they all lawyers as well? Or no, not at all. I was I was the only Ukrainian. I was probably the only lawyer. Huh. On top of that. I was definitely the only one who uh, was uh, in, uh, in, in with some, any kind of exposure to financial sector, which I what I was doing as a banking finance lawyer before I joined uh, uh, Business Ombudsman Council as a deputy. And uh, 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 I do not think that uh, uh, my colleagues had that much of an experience in a senior semi-governmental type of a roles that I was occupying which was sort of a bit circumstantial in my particular case because i mean each roster is different but uh, uh i mean my my uh, uh colleagues uh, my dear friends now they would be from uh, uh poland portugal greece france denmark finland uh, uh yeah. Yes, and uh, th there would be some countries, uh, or Romania, 
uh, and there will be some countries that uh, would not be uh, uh, featured at all, which is okay. I mean, uh, that's, that's the way um, each roster is being uh, compiled. Uh, and they would be from uh, different civil society organizations. Uh, they would be practicing uh, doctors, uh, pediatricians. They would be from uh, uh, European Space Agency. Uh, uh, I mean, name it. And uh -huh. the, the, the uh, focus of, of these NGOs and civil society organizations would also be quite different. Uh, uh, ch child protection, inclusivity, city cooperation, uh, subnational governments. Uh, we had one mayor from Croatia, by the way, uh, from a small town next to um, Zagreb. Uh, extremely diversified uh, group. Yes, and and would would you characterize the goal of the program as essentially grassroots diplomacy? People from different countries, at at various levels in, in of success in their professions, getting to know each other, which hopefully fosters better relations in the future. It's to foster transatlantic cooperation at all possible levels. Uh, uh, it's uh, uh, based on the assumption that everyone would uh, um, benefit sooner or uh, later in a, uh, frankly, more modest way or in much more visible. Uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron uh, is the former or is the actual uh, GMF alumni. He, oh, he did wow. the same thing that I did, uh, but back in 2006. Um, uh, uh, Mogherini, uh, uh, she used to be a US, uh, EU uh, commissioner on foreign policy. Uh, she, she was also uh, the part of GMF. Uh, mm. And that this is just something that is extremely visible and easy to kind of tie up uh, with GMF uh, to when the one is uh, supposed to answer your question, right? But there are way too many other levels uh, that uh, uh, kind of remain with you uh, as uh, as this permanent bond that uh, GMF uh, creates between uh, everyone who has been um, with uh, with the one of the leadership development programs, uh, the the network of uh, alumni is, is something that all of us would from now on belong on uh, forever. Uh, yesterday, for instance, uh, uh, while here in Bratislava, I uh, was invited uh, by uh, uh, by. Uh, uh, um, Marian Zahar, whom uh, uh, I was supposed to meet much earlier at the beginning of this year when I was supposed to join the spring roster, but wasn't able to do so because of war. Uh, but nevertheless, we finally met with him and his wife, who are GMF alumni as well. Uh, his wife is uh, helping out uh, uh, as an advisor, uh, Slovak prime minister on matters related to EU. And yesterday uh, there was a meeting of uh, Slovak GMF alumni community, where, among other things, I've met uh, 
Powell Damage, for instance, who used to be uh, a Slovak Minister of Foreign Affairs for many years and director of GMF office in Bratislava for many years. Or um, uh, Miroslav Lachowski, uh, who is also now with the Prime Minister and who been with Emmanuel Macron on his trip back in 2006 and who showed me this picture yesterday. Uh, uh, Emmanuel hasn't changed that much. Uh, maybe just uh, uh, a haircut became different, uh, somewhat shorter. Yes, but uh, uh, we were laughing that uh, uh, you kind of might easily recognize that uh, type of a GMF pictures when everyone is having a nice dinner at the end of a very difficult day, and there is always someone picturing a, a group sitting around the table uh, having a dinner, and uh, yeah, it's sort of a almost like a cliche, but in a very nice uh, sense amongst uh, people that did the, the, the GMF program. Yeah. Um, and how how was it being as, as a Ukrainian being in America while while the war is going on uh, in Ukraine with Russia? Uh, it's uh, uh, you, you, you feel like you are on the mission. Uh, um, at least I'm sharing my own experience because you, uh, uh, you, you might have observed uh, from what I've said that uh, it was a pretty uh, unique uh, circumstances uh, uh, to to actually be being privileged to end up in such a roster and the quality of meetings and the people we've met sometimes would uh, uh, kind of place me in the situation when I was not able to resist the temptation or of or almost like. Um, uh, maybe taking way too much time and stealing it from my uh, fellows by actually trying to speak in favor of the Ukrainian cause. Uh, and uh, uh, I'm just so much thankful to all of them who has uh, showed so much humidity and compassion and empathy to me by uh, not restraining anyhow uh, this uh, uh, um, uh, enthusiasm, uh, which sometimes was probably just as a, as a water boiling over the, the pot or something. But, uh, you know, when you are meeting the mayors of certain important cities or a former uh, congressman or uh, um, uh, 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 attorney general uh, of a certain state, uh, 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 you know, you feel uh, you just uh, need to pursue uh, a certain messages and deliver them and uh, to make sure that uh, 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 Ukrainian uh, cause is not uh, being left intact. Uh, in, in uh, we, we, this was something that needed to be mentioned many times. Sometimes you express anxiety. Sometimes you uh, sort of uh, act in a, I, I cannot say in a controversial, but maybe in a somewhat uh, even sensitive uh, uh uh, way uh, uh, the 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 end of October, beginning of November, if you might recall, was the period of time before U.S. midterm elections, when uh, uh, everyone who was on the Ukrainian side, including Ukrainians, were particularly concerned with the ramifications of the uh, possible uh, reshuffling or, or a composition of in the House of Representatives, and one third would be changed in the. Uh, in the Senate, but predominantly uh, everyone was concerned about the ramifications of the new uh, composition in the in the House, uh, and uh, 
Yeah, uh, maybe uh, not by Ukrainians or by uh, Americans, by someone else. This uh, uh, threat uh, was, uh, or a perception of this threat was being fueled to sort of show that there is a, a imminent risk that the Ukrainian the, the, the cause will be not properly financed uh, after that. The, the threats to the Ukrainian uh, Ukraine-related aid. And we would have a, a certain bilateral uh, type of meetings when uh, people, uh, politicians from both uh, uh, angles would be uh, meeting us and we would be talking to them, current or former. And uh, I would just simply be saying that uh, uh, I'm not here to anyhow comment the uh, workings of the, of the American democracy. It's not uh, my place to uh, uh, show any particular opinion on what would reasonably be uh, viewed and must be viewed as uh, uh, your internal matter. It's not correct uh, to uh, uh, opine on it, uh, uh, but the only thing I, I would like to ask or double check whether our understanding is correct is that if you guys are genuine, by employing such a, a term as a, a bipartisan uh, support. Uh, ostensibly, if this definition actually makes sense, it should mean that regardless of what are the outcomes of uh, American internal political uh, process, the output when it comes to supporting Ukraine shall not suffer, shall not change at all, because this is what bipartisan support is. And I can only confirm that uh, that type of meetings that has been arranged for us uh, proved that uh, uh, we were speaking to a very much uh, informed and reliable uh, sources and people because uh, this hint that uh, we might as a group have uh, received that there is a good implied at that time chance that there will be a good financial package allocated and voted through the Congress uh end of december beginning of january i believe yes uh, uh and uh, it actually happened the way how i was reassured so it was not uh, uh, sort of something that uh, uh, i can now sort of looking uh retroactively uh, i can only confirm that those people were uh, very very much genuine and frank speaking and open-minded with me i received the correct uh, uh um go ahead so to say correct information that's that's good to hear. I mean, I have to imagine that um, for for these people, for a lot, for all the people in the U.S. who met you, it's one thing to hear about and read about the the war in Ukraine through the news, and it's another thing to have somebody who's from Ukraine uh, right in front of you talking about it. Um, uh, so to sort of uh, uh, wrap up, perhaps on this, the overall attitude would be uh, that uh, uh, everyone was extremely supportive, and the predominant sentence would be on all uh, levels, uh, regardless whether that would be a very personal uh, communication with someone who is the proud owner of the. Uh, uh, ranch somewhere in uh, Colorado mountains where we would spend a night or uh, actual incumbent uh, leader of uh, majority in a certain uh, state legislature uh, and who would be speaking uh, in uh, um, uh, 
not only personal but also uh, uh, political institutional capacity the uh, uh, predominant sentence that i would hear the most often would be how can we help what would you like us to do so uh, it was very much appealing uh, sometimes quite emotional sentimental but uh, true that's that's very encouraging to hear um now, uh, before you went on this trip, you worked for a number of years. Oh, prior to that, you were a, a lawyer, and then you were uh, you worked with the Business Ombudsman Council in Ukraine. Um, now, I, I'm assuming that when you were a child, you didn't say, "When I grow up, I'm going to be an ombudsman," since most children <laughs> are not familiar with an ombudsman. But, but. Um, Talk a little bit about how you went about your work as a lawyer, um, and how you, uh, and then and then your work uh, with the Ombudsman Council. Oh, uh, it's it's a difficult question in a sense that it, uh, I would have to concisely in a few sentences capture <laughs> uh, just several decades of my life, uh, Stephen. Uh, I mean, how how can I answer that? Uh, well, uh, I. Uh, uh, when I got back from Canada uh, uh, for the first time in 1998, I guess I have found that first in-house uh, job with the firm that uh, was involved in a certain tri trade finance business where a combination of my legal skills uh, and uh, language skills uh, would be necessary. So yes, uh, English would always be with me as a very important element of my professional leverage. Um, uh, and again, I can only repeat that uh, uh, starting from uh, not earlier than 1997, 1998, uh, maybe even later, that uh, 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 to have someone who is Ukraine-trained lawyer and whose mother tongue uh, is, is Ukrainian uh, uh, would also be able to speak, who is also able to speak right, uh, participate in negotiations and actually argue on the client's behalf was quite a bit of a rarity. It's not as much as it is uh, perhaps right now. Uh, but uh, the sort of most formidable part of my <clears throat> career started after I uh, got back to Ukraine in 2002, uh, when uh, uh, early uh, in February that year, McGill uh, granted me the master's degree already by that time i was back in ukraine because i knew this is going to happen i already met the requirements of the program in december and left in december 2001 and uh, yes uh, that was a, a big uh, local firm uh, uh, where i was involved in variety of cross-border finance uh, deals including on behalf of the state of ukraine uh, where again the English uh, was was a necessary precondition. It was must. I was basically hired because of that, uh, which was sort of inherent uh, uh, towards uh, expectations from someone who has just came from Canada. I mean, that's that's uh, that's your professional asset. And uh, and by the way, what listeners might be kind of interested in in knowing that I did have uh, some friends back in Canada. Uh, when I was at the end of uh, my academic tenure, uh, who would say, uh, Yaroslav, uh, stay here for another year, actually two, and pass uh, this academic um, uh, 
or earn those academic points uh, to qualify for the uh, minimum uh, academic uh, level that you need in order to uh, receive LLB. You know, you as you might know very well, and the listeners too, uh, I have ended up doing graduate degree and I would be eligible to receive it, but it wouldn't necessarily mean that I would be entitled to practice law in Canada. You would have to show the minimum uh, academic uh, uh, level um, um, and uh, minimum points uh, or whatever it's called. I have already uh, credits. Yes, minimum number of credits, uh, uh, including uh, certain mandatory subjects. Uh, which I didn't take, neither in Alberta nor uh, at McGill. And I just decided, uh, among other things, because the legal market was uh, not in a particularly flourishing state in Canada at that time, I, I can confirm. And because I, I was a little bit overwhelmed with my academic uh, effort, I said, no, I want to go back to Ukraine because the, the, the market there is kind of more lucrative for me and this as aspect of uh, uh being someone who has command in several languages at that particular moment in time triggered my decision not to stay in canada as you see but actually come back and uh, uh, come back to to, to ukraine and in Kiev, where i could i thought that i could better capitalize on on that and yeah, after I got back uh, for the second time, uh, there was this local firm uh, called Magister and Partners. Then there was the project with the World Bank, uh, which uh, provided me with absolutely unique opportunity to uh, uh, promote my security transaction professor from McGill, late Roderick McDonald who taught me secure transactions and who was academic supervisor of my thesis to come to Ukraine as a main expert to uh, uh, draft Ukraine's secure transaction law. And I helped him out in that as a Ukrainian lawyer, together with another colleague, there were three of us. And uh, in terms of sort of a combination of the personal and the professional uh, experience that those circumstances granted to me, it was just something unbelievable. I mean, imagine you start in the year 2000 on a very low level with an, uh, 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 with a Canadian professor who only because of personal interaction with you, who finally understood the difference between Amer between uh, Russians and Ukrainians. Uh, we've been so low. I was the only graduate student in my security transaction class at McGill, which was extremely complex, uh, four credits, I remember now, but which I mastered. We, and out of that, we developed friendship. Uh, Rod uh, was willing to become my uh, uh, academic supervisor and guess where we ended up we ended up uh, continuing this in ukraine as world bank hired experts and doing this very important uh, reform for ukraine uh, which uh, actually even enabled me to do the same thing as usaid experts before i joined business ombudsman council for azerbaijan i did the good chunk of work uh, for the national bank uh, there uh, um, uh, before the pro uh, project started and then it was taken over and finalized by the colleagues from International Finance Corporation. 
But after this uh, project with the World Bank, uh, the actual uh, experience with international law firms started. The first one was the associate uh, and then senior associate position with uh, American firm called Chadburn and Park, relatively uh-huh. well known sure. in the sure, US sure. market. They used to have office there. Uh, I, I think four years I spent with them uh, doing various commercial law things for international clients predominantly. And I mean, the the English was uh, the must. I mean, uh, you you would, uh, I mean, while there uh, uh, or subsequently when I left them to join uh, Gide Lorette Noël, which was the French firm, uh, had, which also had office uh, where I was in charge of banking and finance practice for three and a half years. I mean, I can recall maybe one memorandum I have prepared uh, in Ukrainian in uh, one uh, firm and maybe one memorandum in Russian uh, in another. And I just don't recall in which one it was. But otherwise, it was the environment where all of the deliverables would be either bilingual or only in English. Uh, so. Uh, it was an interesting period, uh, uh, and uh, for, for, for again for listeners, it was uh, uh, it, it would be something that I could share, and I'm sure many of them know that uh, uh, in a legal uh, environment, environment of the kind of a, uh, of doing pr- actual practicing lawyering when you are with the law firm and you are bilingual, it's not. Uh, only associated with your sort of a technical linguistic skills. Uh, we understand uh, uh, between ourselves that uh, if uh, someone has good command in English and has a legal degree not only from Ukraine, but also from uh, Canadian University or American Law School, uh, it means that the person's legal uh, training and mindset is sufficiently uh, global uh, is uh, uh, as it was in particular in my case is uh, trained to uh, interpret uh, is trained in both common law and civil law that's what I wanted to say uh, the project that I mentioned about security transactions was an excellent example and why Rod what uh, was selected was because at that time, Quebec was probably and remains to be so the best jurisdiction in the world, which uh, when it comes to uh, US uh, art, uh, UCC Article 9, which is the most advanced security regi- transactions regime in the world, was able to uh, transfer the knowledge, the substance into the form of the civil code and the legal terminology employed in a civil law jurisdictions. Uh, Slovakia did it actually to a certain extent in 2010 uh, or uh, uh, in 2000 or 2001 and then Ukraine did it in 2003 and that's why other uh, uh, colleagues from Azerbaijan wanted to tap into this Ukrainian uh, uh, experience uh, that we have but I mean I guess what I want to uh, say is that it's much more greater than uh, just the technical uh, command in, in language. It, it is also the embodiment of a certain mindset and your flexibility uh, as, as, a, as a, a lawyer who is capable to work in the international settings. I mean, that's the must. 
you cannot uh, do cross-border job of any sort uh, in any field unless you uh, uh, possess uh, uh, command in several languages. Uh, it's, it's, it's clear. And then, yes, after the revolution of dignity, uh, which was in 2013, uh, um, already, uh, I was enrolled, uh, by the way, with, uh, with the International Commercial Arbitration Academy uh, that uh, the International Chamber of Commerce organized for uh, uh, lawyers from Central Eastern Europe to sort of enhance, uh, expand the roster of people that are trained to act as an arbitrators. Uh, yes, the revolution uh, came to the end and I was willing to really invest something uh, to my country's uh, um, progress. Uh, it was a special moment in time when uh, also the government wanted to show its genuity, uh, the existence of the true political will to improve uh, access to justice for businesses in circumstances when courts as traditional dispute resolution mechanisms were not uh, that much trusted. And yes, this concept, uh, the, this platform or a body called Business Ombudsman Council was jointly set up by the government, EBRD, European Bank for Construction Development, OECD, and five large local business associations. So that was a stakeholder base uh, that was basically a shareholder sitting in the supervisory board, and they needed an operational team. And they had a competition for Business Ombudsman and for two deputies. And uh, I know that uh, I was actually very much encouraged by many of my friends and colleagues to apply for a deputy business ombudsman role. They they thought that for whatever reasons, maybe they felt it even better than I do that I would fit the job description, which would be uh, again uh, environment uh, very uh, uh, challenging uh, uh, when you are uh, in between uh, a very interesting set of uh, multilingual internal stakeholders. Uh, whom I mentioned, yes, uh, not only international financial institutions, but also the government and uh, uh, local businesses, but even the business associations would be uh, a bit, uh, some would be totally international, like American Chamber of Commerce or European Business Association, and some would be more local, like Union of Industrialists and Entrepreneurs or uh, um, uh, Chamber of Commerce, as a matter of the fact. Uh, and yeah, I mean, the language is just something that would uh, be a cross-cutting element of uh, your eligibility to stay on the job, to communicate with the internal stakeholders, speak to them in various circumstances, but also speak to business uh, who uh, applies and lodges complaints, speak to governmental officials on many levels, speak to external um, uh, donors who would act as a financiers. So this interchangeable need to, uh, or this this need to interchangeably use uh, languages uh, in a way that you cannot even predict to the extent you can uh, when you are in a private practice in a law firm was particularly descriptive of this position. Uh, as much as you couldn't sort of predict and plan your day uh, properly, because sometimes you are just there on call and you have to fulfill the duty that matches your status uh it kind of goes along together uh inherently with the need to just uh, don't even think uh, uh when you are switching from one language to another sometimes when you are on a high level meeting uh and there is no translator and the prime minister is communicating to uh, uh a leading person from uh, uh brussels or whatever you just translate i mean you 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 
you are, and you have to be okay. Uh, that's the element of uh, you know uh, just stability. There is nothing wrong with that. That's the part of the job to be always kind of acute and prepared. And that's was something that I was doing indeed for seven and a half years in the institution that was uh, acting as a alternative dispute resolution mechanism to enable businesses to get access to justice, fair treatment, challenge business malpractices uh, from from all types of public authorities. Yeah. And so after that experience um, and, and your experience uh, with the German Marshall Memorial Fellow Program, um, what's going to be next for you? Uh, German Marshall Memorial uh, Fellowship Program would have to occur no matter whether I would be incumbent or not. I was picked up, selected for this role when I was still in my position, even before, oh. uh, uh, before COVID. Uh, so uh, the uh, GMF experience was uh, uh, not something that I would characterize as a, a sort of a type of a job. Yeah, that was oh, okay. rather uh, a, a, a very peculiar immersion through a, a field trip. Uh, I, and I have to mention, uh, uh, Stephen, those five cities that in my particular case I visited. It was Washington, Baltimore. Denver, Atlanta, and New York. That what was in my particular case. But uh, that was more like a, a very special, once upon a lifetime type of an experience. Uh, yeah, sounds like it. And, uh, by the way, not only uh, official meetings, uh, NFL matches, uh, NBA matches, uh, music, Broadway musicals, uh, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, Winery not far away from New York on a on, on a Long Island, uh, variety variety of different uh, interesting uh, 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 things uh, from 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 different uh, uh, kind of uh, levels. Uh, each uh, city would have its own city coordinator, and the city coordinator would be the one who would be running the show for us. He, he or she is vested with the full discretion to organize for us uh, what he or she seems fit. Therefore, you are kind of all over, and uh, yeah, you you are visiting some incredible uh, places and meeting with some absolutely incredible people. Uh, but now, uh, I uh, think I uh, would uh, try to uh, ascertain uh, how does this leverage and skill set I possess uh, can be best capitalized on uh, when I don't know which of those uh, are of the particular demand. And in order to identify this for myself, I would probably for some time keep my eyes opened against uh, types of uh, short-term consultancy expert opportunities that match my um, qualification. And I would uh, take some of them on board and I would see how it goes uh, to maybe uh, arrive to some uh, uh, conclusion at some point in time uh, 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 later on, if there will be some full-time offers. It's not that I'm particularly working on, on, on them uh, now. I cannot exclude that uh, some might arrive, uh, maybe for uh, something that would be, if we are talking about in-house position, uh, would be more along the lines of a corporate affairs, government relations, legal compliance type of a director. 
Um, if it is uh, in a legal business, uh, yes, I might be joining as a, as a certain uh, suitable uh, uh, law firm uh, which is interested in developing areas of practice or strengthening them uh, uh, where they will see that I can bring in something on board. I also possess um, the good expertise uh, in uh, going through these uh, elements of uh, corporate um, experience to corporate governance via Ukrainian Corporate Governance Academy uh, uh, in, uh, in in what is uh, uh, not executive board member type of a role. So I can try myself there as well. I cannot exclude that there might be some corporates that would be willing to have someone like me on board in the actual sense of the word, of mm -hmm. the word on board. Yeah. On board, yes. And yeah, I mentioned uh, uh, Chartered Institute of Arbitrators and uh, uh, arbitration as such, either international commercial or international investment, it well, would be a very lucrative uh, opportunity that uh, would indeed create the temptation for me that I am definitely not willing to resist. If there will be an opportunity to employ my expertise there, uh, that would be something that uh, I would gladly accept. That 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 is something very much desirable. But uh, I don't know whether someone might have spoken on this podcast earlier. This is not. I, at least this is my perception, the number of well-qualified professionals, the supply of expertise greatly exceeds the demand when it comes to uh, uh, particular international investment arbitration, maybe to somewhat lesser extent international commercial. But I did some things while uh, uh, with the Business Ombudsman Council that fall under the category of investor state dispute resolution, ESDS mediation when uh, some of our complainants would be threatening the state of Ukraine with the uh, actual lawsuit, uh, with launching international uh, uh, treaty arbitration, and uh, the so-called cooling off period would start, uh, the one that is envisaged under BAT, uh, bilateral investment treaty, or uh, multilateral instruments such as Energy Charter Treaty, so the Ministry of, of, of Justice would create an ad hoc working group uh, comprising governmental officials on one side and uh, us meeting the potential complainant side during a non-confidential workings of the working group and I would act effectively as a, as a mediator. I'm hopeful that that might happen with me at some point in time of my career. And Another question, or sort of a last question I wanted to ask you about, um, I, I know from my own experience teaching Ukrainian graduate law students online this last semester, and from an article that appeared in the New York Times that I read, there's sort of a, a, a balance between uh, during, during the war of life in some ways going on as normal and in other ways being uh, very disrupted. In what ways has the war affected and changed the way you work and, and the things you're able to do? And in what ways has it not affected it? I'm not sure if that's an easy question to answer or not. Uh, well, um, I would be having difficulties trying to pick up on something that has... Uh, 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 a positive impact, of course. Uh, I mean, uh, 
it was uh, uh, and remains to be a rather difficult period for my uh, family. We remain to be split. Uh, family settled down here in uh, in Bratislava. I am supposed to spend most of my time in Kyiv. Um, the uh, beginning of the war or that pre-war period uh, actually continued that uh, regime that we started to employ in the Business Ombudsman Council to enable people to work on the distance. And while uh, it is generally desirable for many institutions uh, in the short term uh, or a medium term uh, perspective, when such settings continue lasting for two or three years, uh, that is not uh, what uh, not only this particular institution, but I think many other teams uh, maybe wouldn't necessarily have to benefit from because the the, the opportunity of the direct uh, interaction and communication in the office settings uh, is uh, still uh, needed. It doesn't have to be overestimated, but it shall not be underestimated as well. The, the opportunity of the actual personal communication is uh, is important. Uh, what I've learned is that uh, uh, you know human beings are prone to getting inadvertently adjusted to many uh, difficult uh, circumstances uh, and uh, or inconveniences I would say and that uh, uh, that uh, I am not in the position to compare myself to those brave uh, ladies and gentlemen that are fighting for us on the front line I'm just speaking like a ordinary person who would be supposed to stay or two months after I returned from the US in my apartment in Kyiv, uh, before I managed to uh, come to, to, to Bratislava for a few weeks. And uh, yeah, you have like uh, 55 hours without electricity one time uh, after the strikes, uh, you have 48 hours another. You are looking at the website of uh, the power supply company uh, in the morning uh, to plan your day ahead because they would announce uh, time slots when the electricity will be definitely not available, some when it will definitely be available, and uh, some 50-50, and uh, that's kind of a situation which requires from you to plan your uh, time uh, accordingly. When I ended up here with my laptop, uh, I kind of arrived, I realized, with the same mindset. You kind of tend to start assuming that electricity is something that is not to be available 24 hours a day. And for some strange reasons, I was experiencing like the real uprise of uh, my commitment to work to work 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 and get something done while the electricity is still available maybe it was uh, something that my brain was demanding from me for some good 10 days and uh, you sort of get adjusted there to um, sirens uh, air attack sirens when there is an alert and uh, 
uh, you change this the the country for a little while, and you uh, kind of start hearing a certain traffic uh, police uh, uh, sirens or something. We we are living here not far away from the uh, presidential palace here in Bratislava. So this you know guys uh, uh, bringing back and forth officials, maybe the the first person herself would be kind of uh, uh, driving around the city, and you hear the sirens as well. But your immediate brain reaction to that would be that, oh, this is air uh, strike alert. That's the way how, uh, you know, the, that's being consumed by your uh, brain, really. Um, that's on, on a kind of a very much primitive, I would say, uh, everyday type of uh, observation and experiences uh, situation. Uh, or uh, uh, reaction to, towards your question. But uh, uh, if I were to try to employ some uh, kind of a helicopter view type of uh, uh, analysis, uh, I, I, I think uh, it, it just goes along the various themes related to the fact that we have unveiled uh, ourselves as Ukrainians both uh, uh, towards each other, what we are capable for, as a strong uh, uh, nation that uh, uh, when we are sometimes doing something uh, uh, amongst people that have never uh, met before and will probably never meet again, uh, uh, it's, uh, you know, the, the passion and the sentiment towards that is almost like you, are, you belong to a big family. And uh, that's a very intimate, very special feeling uh, and interpretation of belongingness uh, that, uh, uh, that, that you acquire. Uh, and uh, from that, I guess it's, it's a necessary kind of an emotional uh, and big uh, uh, spring hole, uh, springboard to, to sort of start transmitting this uh, all over uh, the world. Uh, to to uh, if you're talking about the collective West democratic world, uh, Central and East and Western Europe, uh, whatever, plus North America, whatever the definition of that is, uh, I think you 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 saw it yourself. You realized it through our experience that uh, many things related to the freedom of uh, choice. Uh, the uh, uh, results of a normal democratic process, um, uh, fairness, uh, certain values that we all share. This is not to be taken for granted. This to be this is to be cherished, observed, and defended. Uh, sometimes, yeah, e e even in a such a, a way as it is happening right now. Uh, so I. Uh, I think the the uh, level of sacrifice he, that we are making um, with our uh, lives uh, is uh, uh, not only for 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 us. Uh, it's predominantly for the sake of uh, preserving Ukraine's independence uh, and um, uh, actually existence of our. Nation, it's in its national recognized uh, uh, borders, uh, and our own national state uh, uh, 
build up our statehood. It's 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 about sharing uh, uh, the, the the sentiment on a greater scale. It's it's to it's to say that. Uh, the last argument that could have been used in order to show that uh, Europe without Ukraine is not complete uh, is uh, being uh, is is has actually been used uh, uh, courtesy, so to say, of our uh, uh, cruel um, uh, northern neighbors, and. Uh, uh, we have to finish it up and continue on together. Um, it's sort of, uh, uh, yeah, maybe it it, it, uh, it woke up many in the collective West from this lethargic uh, uh, dream, lethargic condition, uh, when, uh, again, many things were taken uh, way too much for granted. And... Uh, as one of the uh, UK politicians uh, said uh, uh, in in her programmatic speech, it was uh, the, the the Prime Minister uh, who was in her position only several days. Uh, uh, she said uh, uh, at the beginning of uh, um, uh, uh, June, and I cannot agree uh, more. Uh, with, with what she said it was that uh, after the breakup of the former Soviet Union, uh, Russians were allowed to tap into the network of economic relations and uh, commercial and business projects with, uh, uh, with the collective West, predominantly with Western European countries. And uh, that was facilitated and encouraged uh, based on the assumption that uh, effectively the uh, economic interest business was the way to recharacterize and recharge the relations with the uh, former uh, Soviet power would let that Soviet power uh, or Russians change. But in fact, what we have observed with this war was that uh, economy and business lost to ideology. And all those efforts were, and, and the assumptions that led to this approach to be pursued for uh, several decades when uh, the stockpile of the uh, European and even American uh, conventional weapons became so much dried out and uh, dilapidated. Um, was the result of their belief in the fact that this approach is correct and there is no more any uh, other threat and there will be no more conventional war in the boundaries of uh, uh, of continental Europe. But that uh, calculation proved out to be uh, wrong. Of course, I was referring to what Lee Strauss, a former UK Prime Minister, had to say, I guess, when she was not yet appointed to the PAM role and she was in the cabinet, I think, responsible for the, for the foreign policy. It was it was very, very clever, clever statement at that time. Yeah. Um, let me ask you one question before we wrap up. Um, is there anything that you've read or, or watched recently or listened to uh, that you might recommend for our listeners? 
I was recommended to read the book, uh, which dates back to, to 1996, written by two lawyers uh, uh, and uh, scholars uh, who were not arbitrators in terms of their immediate background, but who wanted to, uh, and their names are Yves Desolai and Brian Gars. And uh, this is the book uh, uh, that was originally published in 1986. It's called Dealing in Virtue, International Commercial Arbitration and the Construction of a transa uh, Transnational Legal Order. And uh, this is the uh, book generally regarded as one of the arbitration classics, explaining uh, how the interesting mixture of uh, economic and political events of 70s and 80s uh, led to the rise and creation of the international commercial arbitration the way the authors saw it as of 1996. This is a fascinating book based on the comprehensive uh, interviewing of uh, uh, maybe 50, if not more, senior uh, arbitration professionals, both scholars and lawyers. And it kind of explains and refers to both petroleum uh, disputes of 70s, 80s between North and South. It explains the situations when, uh, at the outset of popularity of international com commercial arbitration, U.S. litigators would end up in the commercial uh, international commercial arbitration uh, hearing rooms dominated by the grand old man, typically comprising EU, uh, represented by the EU uh, the law professors, and how this. Um, uh, soft, uh, contentious situations uh, led to the uh, interesting byproduct, the, uh, so to say, that led to the rise in popularity of such an instrument as international commercial arbitration and why it is the part of the greater phenomena called international uh, uh, or a transnational legal order. I would totally recommend it for anyone who would just at the leisure time like to uh, entertain yourself with the way how uh, the course of recent events in 70s, 80s and 90s uh, all over the world has uh, facilitated creation of such a phenomenon. It has a very practical situations when, let's say, it's very nicely shown that the uh, better institutional capacity possessed by rich U.S. litigators firms that started to do international uh, commercial arbitration outweighted, uh, but at the same time outweighted European uh, law professors and at the same time benefited uh, and reached the, uh, the eventual uh, uh, departure from Lex Mercatoria that was employed by professors towards more structured and organized and more procedurally focused uh, and uh, a, a, a picture that describes what the international commercial arbitration is right now. So it's it's very interesting about the clash of uh, 
not only the cooperation between countries, as you mentioned, which is also nicely described in the book, but also about the clash of a different even actors in this legal theater, possessing totally different background and mindset, but who are still being forced, possessed to actually either cooperate or oppose each other. And what would be the kind of a, a, a byproduct of that explosion, you know? Uh-huh. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for, for sharing that. And I'll, I'll briefly share my, my recommendations for this episode, which are two of my favorite podcasts. One is the BBC's Ukraine cast, which is how I keep up on what's going on in Ukraine, as well as um, getting a lot of insights into personal stories going on in, in, inside the war in Ukraine. Um, and the other one that I've, I've really enjoyed is the BBC's, uh, I think it's an eight-part series on called Putin, which is all about who Vladimir Putin is and how he came to be and puts a lot of things in in perspective uh, in terms of today's events. So thank you so much, Yaroslav, for taking the time to to join me today. It was my pleasure, Stephen. Um, I'm hopeful that if you were to receive some feedback from your listeners, you would definitely share it with me in a due course. We certainly will in due course. Um, So if you have any feedback on this episode, please do let us know. And and we will be sure to share it with Yaroslav as well. Um, We will include any relevant links from this episode in the show notes. Uh, I want to remind our listeners to subscribe to the U.S. Law Essentials podcast on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, Himalaya, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also listen to all episodes on uslawessentials.com. And if you have any questions, comments, reactions, ideas, etc., we always love hearing from our listeners. You can contact us by email at daniel at uslawessentials.com or through the U.S. Law Essentials Facebook group or LinkedIn group. So thank you for listening to U.S. Law Essentials Law and Language Podcast and stay essential.